Welcome to the Being Well podcast. I'm Jan Orman. In this podcast series, we've invited people we know and admire to tell you their stories. My name's Paula Kotovich. So my name is Craig Sample. Evie Rader. Molly Shorthouse. My name's Percy Knight. I was a career detective in the New South Wales Police Force. I identify as a trans woman. I am a remote doctor in East Arnhem Land. These are people who may not have made the headlines, but whose stories are just as worthy of your attention as those you hear about in the media. Living with cancer. I was struggling with PTSD for eight or nine years. I just had a lot of fear. I was well and truly burnt out. These are people who have flourished and met life's challenges while managing their social and emotional well-being. Uh, my career now uh, is as a mental health advocate and educator. I led a team that negotiated a $22 million native title. It definitely taught me in my life a lot of persistence and given me a lot of strength. We're hoping you'll find something in these stories to inspire you, whatever your situation right now. I want to introduce you to Dale Skinner. Like many people with bipolar disorder, it took a very long time for Dale to get the right diagnosis and treatment. Since that time, he's been an enthusiastic advocate for people with lived experience of mental health difficulties and a campaigner for better mental health care. Dale also fundraises for the Black Dog Institute and works energetically as one of our lived experience presenters. I hope you enjoy listening to Dale's story. Hi, I'm Dale Skinner, uh, Black Dog Institute uh, volunteer. Um, I've been with the Institute for nine years, um, live in Albury, Wodonga, uh, 40, 42, 43 this year, uh, married with uh, one uh, daughter, three stepchildren and two grandchildren. I've always done fundraising and sponsorship and stuff with sports and um, sporting clubs and all that uh, all my life. So I've been involved in that sort of stuff and I thought, well, I wanted to contribute more. One of the things when you have a bipolar high is you have a lot of ideas and a lot of things, oh, I should do this, I should do that, I should do this. Most of them don't actually come to fruition. I was having, I was on a, on a high and um, I said to a couple of friends, oh, I'm going to run, I'm going to run from uh, Albury to Sydney to Black Dog. No, no, you won't do that. You'll never do that. And it sort of sat in the back of my mind. That it, and it sort of annoyed me. I, I'm not. I don't like people that tell me I can't do things. So it sort of sat in the back of my mind. And so that got me thinking. And and so I went and seen um, a doctor because I've had knee issues in my life. I went and seen the doctor that uh, the doctor that I had seen for a while said, "This is what I'm thinking about doing. I'm going to run." from Albury to Sydney. And he said, oh, well, you can do it, but if you do it, you probably never walk again. Um, I said, okay, no worries. And um, and then so I left and I was really dejected and, and um, yeah, I thought, well, you know, like, what else am I going to do? And the doctor actually emailed me and said, oh, well, why don't you ride? Um, and I'd never been a rider. I'd never been a cyclist. Um, so I said, okay, no worries. We'll give that a go. And um so yeah it all started from there and and um i got a group of friends and we sort of did some brainstorming about what we're going to call it and and i told them what the concept was and the concept was that um you know like like cycling um you know mental illness that yes you can get all the help you like you know you can get 
you know, the best bike, you can get, you know, first aid, you can get training, you know, you can get all the help you like, just like in mental health, you can get best doctors, psychologists, psychiatrists, but at the end of the day, you're the one that's got to do it. So I'm the one that had to ride, I'm the one that had to ride up the hills, I'm the one that had to ride down the hills, I'm at the one that had to ride through the pain and all that sort of stuff. And it's the same with mental health. So that was the concept. So we end up coming up with ride of choice. Um, I'm luckily enough that I know some people that are, um, you know, quite well known. So we had, you know, trivia night. We had some sportsmen's nights to raise money. And, and not only did it raise money, it was starting a lot of conversations. And, and that's when the money sort of didn't become as important because of the conversations that were happening and the amount of people that were saying, you know, because of that, then I'm now going to a doctor. So that became a really important aspect of it as well. Um, you know, in the end, it was it was nice. Mum and Dad sort of did the support vehicle. Um, uh, it was interesting because I don't think my mum and dad have ever spent that much time together um, for a long time, for, you know, six days in a car. But, you know, we, we had some really good conversations with people along the way as well, um, you know, where we'd stop different places or a lot of the times mum and dad would get pulled over um, by strangers and they'd give money or they'd have a conversation you know it was really worth it it um, you know it's something that you know I'm I'm quite proud of it's something I'd love to do again uh, but it was something I was proud with and you know look along the way you know I, I had black dog support all the time you know the fundraising team were ringing me regularly saying you know what can we do you know do you need anything um you know to to finish there at the institute and have you know probably 15 or 20 people including helen um at the at the finish line um you know was was pretty special so um yeah look it's something that i'm, I'm sort of quite proud of I don't recall ever being introduced to mental health. It was never discussed at school. Um, I don't really ever recall it being discussed uh, until you know I sort of started to struggle, and I didn't even know then that that's what it was. Um, so it wasn't really until you know I'd heard the terms depression and and stuff float around and stress and you know. Uh, but I didn't sort of at no stage that I sort of you know associate that with with me or or when I was experiencing depression. I didn't you know link that to you know the how I was feeling. So it wasn't until you know I went to the doctor for that first uh, that first time and had that first diagnosis of of depression um, that I really then and even then I sort of didn't take much notice of it I, I, I sort of you know like a lot of people I said oh well, okay now I know what it is and he gave me some tips on you know managing my life better so I tried to do those and uh, you know and they they didn't work so uh, and the, the difficult thing there is I was in a very small town so the, the first person the first time I noticed I went to um a GP in in, uh, in Seymour, and he was quite well known. You know, doctors obviously, you know, confidentiality, but there was a fear that, you know, seeing him, it might get out. Uh, he might say something to somebody else or he might say something to me in public in front of other people. Um, so it seemed a local one. And then by time I um, went again, sort of 21, 22, um, I was living in Shepparton, so... Um, yeah, went and seen a GP again, 
uh, in Shepparton. And he was a little bit more educated, I think, than the, the first one. But, um, yeah, he still wasn't you – know, the, the, the information given to me around it wasn't great. So that's when I started my own sort of personal crusade, I suppose, of, of educating myself. I, I wanted to educate myself – because I didn't know what was happening and, and and I didn't really get an explanation from the doctors as to what was happening or why it was happening. Um, so that's why I sort of thought, well, I need to understand what's going on because at that point in time it was impacting on my first marriage. So I, I needed to understand what was going on. Um, so that's, yeah, that sort of brought me into doing some my own research and it wasn't, it was quite difficult to to find information that wasn't just purely negative and and terrifying. It was hard to find information that was just, you know, basic information without any influences or anything like that. So it took me a while. But as I sort of, as I learnt more and more and more, and I learnt more about my own illness and I learnt more about my behaviours, and as a result of that, over a sort of the, the space of you know five to six years and and a, and a couple of other minor attempts in my life, I I realised that there was a good chance that the diagnosis wasn't correct. Um, and uh, but I didn't know, you know, reading what I was going through and what I was experiencing didn't match with you know with depression. But I wasn't having, you know, hallucinations. I wasn't psychotic. Or, you know, I wasn't. I didn't feel as though I was, you know, in danger or hurt, in danger of hurting someone else. So, yeah, it was really tricky um, knowing what was happening. So I was, I was first diagnosed or correctly diagnosed with bipolar 28, uh, and that was uh, so as I previously said. After doing a lot of my own research, and and I, I knew something wasn't right. I wasn't sure whether it was bipolar um, or whether it was um, personality disorder uh, or what it was. The, the information was a very confusing. Um, when you don't have a clear mind, and I didn't have a clear mind because of my depression. It's quite easy to read into things and, and read a description about, you know, personality disorder and say, oh, yep, that's me, or read a description about this, say, yep, that's me. So I, I knew I had to, um, this is more than just a GP. Um, I had seen some counsellors during that period as well, um, and I didn't find them necessarily overly successful. Um, and I think a lot of that's attributed to the fact that. I hadn't been diagnosed correctly um, and my medication wasn't right because I hadn't been diagnosed correctly. So that's when I started. There was a name that kept coming up in in a lot of the research that I was doing and that was Professor Tiller. Um, And so I sort of looked him up and and he was um, some sort of renowned expert in in, um, in mental health in sort of the next level up um, from depression and, and other illnesses. So I went to my GP and said, look, I need a referral to see this guy. He was in Melbourne. I was living in Shepparton at the time. So I got the referral and, and went up there. And, it, you know, I can still remember the day, you know, in stepping into his office, I was terrified stepping into his office, um, you know, this massive building and 
I didn't know what what was going to happen. I didn't know whether I was going to go up there and he was going to say, you know, you're going to have to be hospitalised for the rest of your life. You know, all these extreme, ridiculous thoughts are going through my head that are completely irrational. Um, and then I went in there and, and he sort of read a little bit. I could see him reading a little bit about the doctor's reports. And like he said, he said, oh, so... You you have different moods and they go your moods would go really up you'd be happy one minute and you'd be sad the next and you know when you're happy you know you've got your thoughts are going 100 mile an hour and you know you don't need to sleep you know you, you just you, you're crazy and you feel like you're jumping off the walls and and um, and then when you're depressed you know you, you don't want to eat and you don't want to get out of bed and and in the first 15 minutes of this this appointment he's described my you know, life and the way I've been, you know, in, in 15 minutes, you know, and it just, I was so relieved after that. I didn't care what he said after that. It was just, you know, a massive relief to hear somebody describe my feeling, my feelings and what I've been going through without me actually telling him. So that I was diagnosed with that, that with, with bipolar type two at that point. And, and not only that, did he, not only did he diagnose me? He gave me a really simple, um, you know, description, and basically that he didn't go necessarily into full detail about, um, you know, the, the medical side of things. He just said, he said, okay, so you're gonna have up moods and down moods. He said, when you're up moods, you're gonna have this, 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 this. When you're down moods, you're gonna have this, this, this. You know, what the idea of the medication is is to try and get you in the in between there and to try and keep your level you're still going to have ups and downs um so it, the the description that he gave me was you know really simple so i walked out of there you know i wasn't scared anymore i knew it was still going to be a struggle i knew you know my life wasn't going to be you know smooth sailing but i had you know, I had some information in my pocket that, you know, that was, was going to be beneficial for me. Well, it, it's really important that, that we all have the right, um, the right diagnosis um, because if we don't have the right diagnosis, number one, you know, any treatment that we're going to get from doctors or that is going to be incorrect. Um, the other thing is, is if you, you get a diagnosis, like I was diagnosed with depression, and so you'd read about depression. You go, "This is these are the symptoms. These are what you know I'm going to be experiencing with depression." But then you're experiencing all these other extremes um, from that. It, it just conf- not only does it confuse you, it makes you feel worse. It makes you feel more isolated. It makes you fear, um, you know what life what life's going to have it also gives you it reduces your confidence in doctors um, because what they've diagnosed you with is completely different to what you're what you're feeling so it can reduce your confidence in in doctors and and the medical uh, the medical fraternity uh, which obviously if, if that occurs and it's extremely dangerous if you're not being treated in any sense but I mean, even for, for if you're not being medicated, if you're looking at uh, you know other therapies, and and there are lots of other therapies around in mindfulness and and um, you know, and well-being and and that sort of thing. If you don't have the correct diagnosis, then how do you know which area you need to focus on, uh, which area you need to try and 
improve or, or strengthen uh, if, if it's well-being related to strengthen your well-being well-being the other the other uh, concept too is is how you explain that to other people uh, if you're if you want to explain what you're going through and you want to explain it to other people uh, it can be really difficult and if you're trying to explain it to say a teacher uh, or a boss uh, and you don't understand it it can quite often seem as though you, you know you're sort of making things up which then uh, obviously creates a really indifferent relationship between uh, yourself and, and that that figure. There's two main types of bipolar, bipolar 1 and bipolar 2. Bipolar 1, you may know as um, as what it used to be referred to as manic depression. So the difference between bipolar and depression is that bipolar has extreme highs and, um, and the depressive episode. So um, often referred to as a roller coaster effect or, or oscillating moods. So bipolar one, the mood, the highs in bipolar one are extreme, often um, associated with psychosis, hearing voices, seeing things, that sort of that type of thing. And the, the, the behavior often puts themselves or other people in harm. Bipolar type 2, which which is what I have, the highs aren't as high. Um, I often sort of refer them to like a hyperactive kid. Um, you're annoying. You don't stop talking. You've got heaps of energy. Um, so there's still that little bit of risk-taking behavior and that little bit of probably not thinking through things. Uh, you just go ahead and, and act on things without thinking. But Often bipolar two isn't uh, isn't as dangerous as bipolar one. Both types of bipolar will require uh, medication, um, and that with medication, there's also other therapies and stuff that you can utilise to to help manage uh, the illness. So treatment wise, from that diagnosis, uh, I was given medication. Uh, I was given the scripts from from Professor Tiller at that point in time. But but he also gave me uh, lots of links and lots of um, things to read about my illness and also about the different medications. He he told me that the the medications that that he gave me might not work. Uh, he really set up good clear expectations that that this medication might not work, but there is other medications out there. And he encouraged me to go and research all those medications to know what side effects there are. So if I'm experiencing these side effects, I can go back to the GP and explain that I'm experiencing these, we may have to swap it, that sort of thing. So he put a lot of my treatment back into my hands, which I wasn't grateful for at the time because um, I sort of thought you know, that he was just palming me off or that, you know, that I wasn't going to be able to get support from, from doctors. But, um, you know, as I sort of went on and, and like now, I, you know, I realise how much of a, um, a blessing it was that he sort of gave me that power because I still do that today. I still research my medication if I ever need to change or if I'm you know often with bipolar medication it can sort of run its course so to speak so I'm 
I'm aware of, you know, different side effects that may happen and, and regularly talk to my doctors about, you know, perhaps a slight increase here for a period of time or decrease here or or a change up. So he gave me that that power which um, you know, I'll be forever grateful for. Um, but the the big thing I think is it wasn't a, a medication thing. I walked away, um, you know, and, and that was in Melbourne, so it was a, a four hour drive back to Shepparton, and, and a lot went through my mind in that period. Uh, and I think that the biggest thing that went through my mind in that period was was ownership, um, and and a healthy anger, a healthy anger that you know this sort of stuff goes on because he told me at that point in time, you know, the, the average time span from initial diagnosis, depression to correct diagnosis was 15 years at that time uh, and what that meant for people. And I knew what I'd gone through in, you know, only sort of, you know, six or seven years. So um, what other people had gone through in 15 years was, was frightening. So I was a little bit angry at, at that, but I had a sense of ownership and a sense of determination to to sort of say, you know, okay, this is this is not good enough. This is not going to continue to happen. I'm gonna I'm gonna find out everything I can about this, and 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 that probably started started me on my journey to to where I am now in terms of with uh, my role with Black Dog. It, it you know it gave me a determination to say, well, well no one else is gonna. No one else is going to go through what I've gone through, which is probably a little bit naive when I think about it. But, um, but yeah, it was education is the best medication for me anyway. So I managed my mental health in, in a number of ways, and and at first I want I want to say you know look yes I've been dealing with it for a long time. I'm fortunate enough that I'm you know. I consider myself fairly well educated in my illness, but in mental illness overall. But that doesn't make it necessarily any easier uh, to manage mental illness. And I have bad periods and I have good periods. When I'm when I'm going well, I'm exercising regularly. I'm eating well. I'm communicating. Um, you know, I'm, I'm talking to people. Um, and and aspects in my life are, are going well. Uh, I used to think that um, you know, everything in my life had to be going perfectly, um, otherwise I, I couldn't be well. And, and that sort of thought process would invade my mind, so to speak, and, and would impact my well-being. So I've learned that you know, not every aspect of your life has to be going perfectly to be um, mentally well um, or physically well, um, but it's about managing those those situations it's about looking at okay what are the problems in those situations can I control them um, you know are they out of my control and it's not not always easy to to accept what is and what isn't out of your control and and it's a bit of a trial and error sometimes where you might try something and then realize it's out of your control I mean I'm at the moment I'm extremely lucky that um, you know Apart from the, the current uh, climate and around the world, my uh, my well-being and, and the different aspects in my life are, are fantastic. So it, it helps when that's the case. So one of the most important parts of managing my mental health is is the people around me, and first and foremost is is my family. Uh, 
obviously I'm very open about my illness. Um, no doubt it's difficult for, for the kids in my life, but as, in terms of my wife, she's been, you know, so supportive uh, of me. Uh, took me a while to, to realise that I need to actually let her support me. It's not a matter of just her supporting me. I need to let her do that. Um, and she does that, you know, extremely well in what could be, you know, sometimes really, really difficult um, times with my mood swings but you know she's extremely patient um and, and yeah just an amazing support for me into as well as as my parents are and it's nice to have a couple of grandkids in my life as well that you know they sort of bring you back down to earth pretty quickly so it is important to, to balance my medication with you know other other um, other different therapies. I do um, sleep is a, is one issue that that I have problems with. So you know I've learned to do um, meditation, um, which doesn't necessarily help me sleep all the time. But what it does, it just relaxes my body. So I still get that rejuvenation overnight. Um, that I'm not exhausted and frustrated and angry like I used to be because I couldn't sleep. Um, so that you know, meditation helps. It also helps during the day um, if I'm you know, frustrated or stressed or agitated. Uh, I can quite often get agitated for no reason, um, which is part of the illness. So I'll often just you know um, uh, just take myself away from my desk at work, slip into a, a carer's room or a, we have a wellbeing room, and just lie down or sit there, stick some, you know, uh, meditation music off on my phone and just there for, you know, five or ten minutes just to clear my head, refocus and then I can go back in um, and, and get back to work, exercise again. It's it's a big one. I know when I'm not exercising I, I sort of struggle mentally. Um, so exercise for me is a, is a big one um, and it's something that I've probably fallen away a bit you know, recently, so uh, like I said, it, it's not easy. Managing well-being is not easy, but it's not hard. It's just getting patterns, getting, you know, doing it regularly. And also, and I say to a lot of people that it's important to put in those practices of good well-being activities when you're well, because when you're not well, it, they're really hard to, to do. So if you do them when you're well and you get a routine up, they're a lot easier to do when you're not well. I use e-mental health resources probably not as much as what I should. Um, I think the amount of time that we spend on our phones and stuff, we probably should use those tools more. Uh, I do use them. Uh, I often use um, my compass um and just I, I use a lot to sort of assess my current moods where I sort of don't think I can sort of figure out what they are. Um, if I, once again, if I get agitated or if I feel a bit low, um, you know, I'll look at things that can assess what my current mood is uh, and then they'll, they'll give you some tips to sort of, you know, try and work your way through it. Um, so they're the ones that I, I often use. One of the important ways of, of managing my mental health but also helping others, which if I help others, it helps me as well, is is being involved with, with support groups. Support groups 
are really important, I think, and I've touched before on, on consumers, and I think that's where support groups uh, really help consumers. I was uh, involved in a, in a group in, in Albury, Wodonga. It was, it was specific for, for bipolar. What we started was just, we started off as only four of us, um, and then from there we sort of having Friday afternoon fortnightly um, group sessions and so as we sort of went along we got more and more and more people joining and and you know we found that a lot of the questions and information that they were were asking were were there was a theme to them all and they were very repetitive for for people so that's when we started looking at getting in experts from um, from the local community to come in and talk to to the group of us about the the things that were concerning people, uh, and it, it wasn't just necessarily specific to to mental health. It was around housing. It was around you know Centrelink payments. It was around legal stuff. Um, it was you know we had chemists in so because people that are going through um, a mental health crisis find it difficult to to make decisions and to try and you know search that minefield of information that's out there to try and get the right information that suits them. So these people are able to ask specific questions of, of the experts. Um, so we really, you know, we, we're really providing a specific service, but as well as those experts, we're able to have conversations with ourselves and people are able to ask each other, oh, this is my problem this week. Has anyone else dealt with it? Um, I was fortunate enough to, I suppose, because of my my work background, uh, my life background, I was able to sort of be the um, the the chair of most of the meetings and sort of direct a lot of the the conversations and um, you know so it was a real privilege um, to be able to do that. You know, I strongly encourage people. You know, don't when you think about support groups, don't think of Alcoholics Anonymous or Gamblers Anonymous, you know, go along, give them a go. If they're not for you, then that's fine. But, you know, I really encourage people. And if there's not one around and, and you've got the, the confidence that, you know, and the resources, you know, try and start one up. So, the story of me with the Institute sort of goes back um, a long way. I, um, my stepdaughter was going to school and there was um, they were doing a reading of a book called um, Walking the Black Dog and it was by Ingrid Barr. And um, so she was doing the reading and the book's about explaining mental health to, to younger younger kids. And um, so my wife knew that I sort of had an interest in um, the mental health space and she said, oh, you know, we should go along. So we went along and she talked about what she does, that she was an advocate for mental health. And, you know, and as she's talking, you know, because I've already thought about this stuff and thought, you know, this is what I want to do. So I went and spoke to Ingrid after the after she'd finished speaking and, and I went up to her straight away and said, I want to do what you do. And... Um, and she said, what do you mean? I said, I want to be a mental health advocate. How do I be a mental health advocate? And she says, oh, you'll need to go to uni and do this and this and this. And I said, I don't want to go to uni. I said, I don't want a piece of paper that says, you know, I've learnt about mental health. Um, I want to talk to people about my story. I want to talk to people and, and share my insights and, and grow with people and learn as I learn and, and talk to them as I learn. Um, and she said, oh, you could um, – 
you know, try the Black Dog Institute. And so the next day I went back to work and, and sent an email through, um, you know, explaining, you know, who I was, what I wanted to do. Um, I hadn't heard of the Black Dog before then. Um, I emailed um, Black Dog and then I think, you know, that afternoon I, I got an email back um, from Sarah Um you know, she said, have you got time to talk? Um, so we spoke on the phone um, that day. And I think the next day um, she had, um, you know, there was an email come through with flight details to, to go to Black Dog um, to do the training. So you know, I was super excited. So um, got to Sydney and I think it was actually from memory, it was the um, second, it was on a Wednesday. It was the second day of the State of Origin, I believe, Um, um only retention rough. I do actually know the date. It was the 17th of June, 2011, and I know that because it's tattooed on my arm. Um, so, um, yeah, so uh, I went down there, and then I think there was about 10 of us in the in the room. I was the first presenter outside of um, Sydney, and I was the pr- first presenter outside of New South Wales, and we were the first group, the new design and the new look um uh, volunteer program and, and training session that was a two-day one for us and so yeah sort of from then um, then on uh, in terms of being a presenter uh, look, uh, there has not been one point in time where I've thought oh, I don't want to do this anymore or I'm uh, not getting supported um, it's probably the opposite there's been a lot of times where I'm thinking I'm not doing enough um, I need to do more presentations Look, I'd say I'd make no secret about the fact that um, I, I don't know what state I'd be in if it wasn't for for Black Dog um, and the work that I do with them and the support and and just the, the whole organisation. You know, when anyone new joins on, you know, I get an email from them and and they tell me that. Um, you know, my name's mentioned a lot there and, you know, which is a bit embarrassing, but um, they don't say whether it's for good reasons or bad, but they say that's it's mentioned. Um, but so, yeah, I I, um, I just I, I love the logo so much. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I had been thinking about it for a while, about getting a tattoo. And, and um, so, yeah, I think it was last year I um, I went and got it done and, and – um, when I explained to, because it's not something you, you see every day, and when I explained it to the girl that was doing it, um, she gave me $50 off, so that's another benefit. I could never remember the date that I started, so I thought, well, let's get the date that I started, um, you know, put on it. So, you know, even if for whatever reason, if I'm not with the Institute anymore, which I hope that never happens, you know, that's always there as a conversational piece. And, and you know, that's the other reason it's there. It's, you know, people are going to look at it and say, what's that? Thank you for listening. If there's been anything in this podcast that you found distressing, don't forget to talk to your usual support person or call Lifeline on 131114. And if you'd like to hear more in the Being Well podcast series, you can find it on the Black Dog Institute website.